Would you please be seated? Thank you. Such a joy to be here. <coughs> and uh, I feel very honored to be part of this Passion for Life um, uh, mission that has taken place and to be part of what's happened here in Yorkshire. I've enjoyed myself very much. <coughs> Just pardon me, I've got a little bit of frog. I've enjoyed myself very much this past week at the different meetings I've been at. Yesterday, <coughs> I was at um, Dad's, um, what's it called? Dad's Being Dadly, is that right? Right. It was a great, great meeting. Um, and while I was there, I heard one little child yelling and screaming, panicking. And uh, I ran to see what was wrong, and I found that this child had fallen into the toilet. <coughs> Anyway, we rescued him and sent him back to his dad. And then a few minutes later, I came out of the washroom and he was standing there waiting for me. He looked at me with his big eyes and he said, Did you fall in too? <laughs> it's been wonderful. I've met wonderful people here. I'd like to draw your attention to uh, two items, if I may, before we get into our passage for the day. The first is this little book which is called Crossing the Line. It's a little book which explains what happens <coughs> pardon me, when people cross the line and become Christians. And I want to come back to this in just a few moments. And the second is this little card which is entitled Your Response. Uh, you will find it, you'll find it somewhere in front of you or in your notice sheet. And if it's not there, you'll find one in the foyer. And I want to come back to this response card just a little later on. So, if you just bear that in mind, we'll turn now to John's Gospel, chapter 10. Thank you. <coughs> John's Gospel, chapter 10. And I want to draw attention particularly to verses 9 and 10 of John, chapter 10. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will speak to us now through your word, that you will do what we can't do for ourselves, that you will enlighten us, and that you will help us to understand what you are saying and, and, and help us to be affirmed in our faith. And for those of us who are here today, who are not too sure of ourselves, that we may feel that unmistakable, eternal, supernatural drawing power drawing us to the Lord Jesus and to establish our faith firmly in him. We ask it for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> I read an analysis a little while ago about our current generation, which, as you know, is rated to be postmodern. And amongst the various things that the analysts were saying about our generation... They were saying the following. They were saying that we are not only culturally diverse, but also there is an alienation, as a general description of our generation, an alienation and an inner homelessness of the generation that exists today. And I thought that was quite interesting because many people I've met, in fact, do feel like that. They feel like they are alienated. They can't explain why they're alienated. And they feel that there's an inner homelessness. There is a there is a sort of an inner lostness. They don't really know why, where they fit in to the big scheme of things. The analysts went on to say that our current generation is suspicious of truth and that they're also pushed and hurried 
and frazzled. And as a result of all of these things, they said that our generation is a despairing and a hopeless generation crying out for redemption. Now, if that is true of our generation, then of course the question is, who do we cry out to for redemption? Who can we trust today? Because we are filled with so many claims and counterclaims and so much disappointment by people in public life and uh, we just don't know who to trust anymore. And against all of this background comes the words of verse 9 in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Now when we utter these words today, when we share these words with people today in our modern society, there are times when great umbrage is taken. Because who are we to say that Jesus is the gate? It's like Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's a truth claim, it's an ultimate claim that Jesus makes. And who are we you know, to say that when people have got other ideas as well? But this is what Jesus said. And if we have problems with it today, you can only try to imagine what problems people had with it in Jesus' day. Because Jesus was uttering these things to people publicly. And if he didn't back up his claims, he would really have been in trouble. And he would have been the greatest fool of all history, and so would we who are his followers, being the greatest fools of all history. And as, as amazing and as offensive a claim like this might be today, it would have been even more offensive in Jesus' day, because they would have seen him as making claims, which is tantamount to claiming to be God. But Jesus goes actually even further, and he says this, He says in verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So the Lord Jesus Christ not only puts himself forward as the one he knew we can trust, but actually says all others are thieves. And that's quite an amazing statement to make. He made it in his own day. He made it publicly. He made it to the people who were his enemies. And then he backed it up in the most amazing way. But let's take it step by step and ask the question, can we really trust what Jesus is saying because we know very well that our society is usually a society which fails us very badly and leaves us very disappointed and very hurt. Often we have parents who fail us. Back home in my own country we have a generation of children growing up with no parents. Uh, Many of them are brought up by aging grandparents if they're lucky enough to have them and we have increasing numbers of, of child households where the eldest child, maybe 12 or 14 years old, bringing up several siblings because their parents have died of HIV AIDS and they live off scraps that people give them or, or, or charity or perhaps scratching in dustbins. And so parents often fail. Schools fail us. Uh, I don't know what happens here in your country, but back home we have countless numbers of complaints about how the education system fails, especially the poorer people in the townships where there's not as much monitoring or resources or there isn't as much privilege. Politicians fail us. We all know that. We all experience that in all of our countries, often the people who are supposed to protect us fail us. Back home in South Africa, I was saying earlier on, (coughs) we belong to a private security company. In other words, if you can afford to do so, you sign up with a private security company and uh, they offer you a three-minute armed response if there's a problem. Now, we would never dream of calling the police if we ran into problems back at home because they take too long, half of them can't be trusted, and they don't have the resources to deal with all the demands that are made upon them. So we call for our armed response company to come, and they will come within three minutes. I needed them just the week before last, just before I came up here, and they were there within just a few moments. Now, my wife is alone at home at the moment, and if she goes out at night and comes home after dark, if she goes out and comes home after dark, 
She would phone up our security company and she would say, I'll be at my gate in five minutes. Can you meet me there? Then they would meet her there and they would take her through the house and get her safely locked in before they left. And that's part and parcel of living where we are living at the moment. And that's because the, the um, security forces, the official security forces of the country cannot cope with the rise of crime and lawlessness that takes place, not, not in all parts of our society, but in some parts of our society. And I may add, sometimes over-exaggerated in the press, but nevertheless very real to those of us who live there. Social safety nets sometimes fail us. We have very few of them in South Africa. Um, the church sometimes fails us. I've been listening to your news broadcasts while I've been here and following all the scandals about the child abuse in the churches and uh, recognizing again how terrible it must be for people to have been abused or disappointed by church leaders. In South Africa, we have satellite television, and so we have a lot of exposure to these television preachers and evangelists. And um, sometimes I, when I see them, I want to weep because I know that the poorer people of our country get swept up with what is being said, especially the teaching that says if you go give so much money, then you know, you'll get so much blessing back from God and all the sort of false stuff that comes out from these preachers. But they're held in high regard, and some of them are localized in South Africa who have their own television programs. And countless numbers of people are fooled by them, and they are confused by them. And in fact, that whole particular theological sort of emphasis has touched almost the whole of the country, so that you've got this kind of false view of what the gospel really is. Sometimes friends fail us, and our loved ones fail us, and we feel betrayed and lost and therefore we have this inner homelessness. So we've got to ask the question, who can we trust? And the first thing I want to point out about this passage that we've read from tonight, uh, this morning, from verses 9 and 10, the first point I want to make is that Jesus tells us we can't trust everybody. That Jesus tells us that there are spiritual thieves. And these, these words come from the Lord Jesus Christ. There are, there are thieves around and robbers around. And Jesus actually says so, and he says it in verses 9 and 10. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. But the thief, he says, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Don't you think that is a very hard statement for Jesus to make? Imagine, imagine Jesus making that in our society today. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. And in the Greek, these words are very hard words. They're harsh words. The thief will come in he will, he, will, he, will, he will kill and, and he will destroy and he will, he will rob you of what you've got inside. And of course Jesus was talking about our inner spiritual lives. He was talking about our faith. He was talking about our dependence on God. He was talking about spiritual reality and the things that we hunger for deep down in our own hearts. Jesus says there are people that you cannot trust with that particular instinct that you have in you. You cannot place your trust in certain people. Now in the context of John's Gospel... Our Lord is making a reference first and foremost to the previous chapter, to chapter 9, where he had healed a blind man. And the healing of the blind man had caused tremendous controversy amongst the religious establishment of Jesus' day. Because by healing the blind man, the Lord Jesus Christ was establishing himself truly as the Son of God, as the Good Shepherd, as the one who came with, with authentic power, the one who could overcome the powers of darkness, the one who was the one in whom you could place your hope and you could place your trust. This wasn't good enough for the religious establishment because they expected a different form of saviour, a different form of messiah. And so they took great umbrage at Jesus and they launched into a terrific offensive against him and to the man who had received the healing. 
and they launched with total irrationality into an attack on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, the Good Shepherd who had come. And when Jesus utters these words in chapter 10, his first reference is to these false teachers who were teaching the people of their own day, these false leaders who were leading these people astray. So they cast the man who was healed of his blindness out of the temple and they attacked Jesus. And these are the ones who were Jesus' opponents. So what Jesus is saying to us, what the Bible is saying to us is this, is that when you are confronted by people who hold philosophies or hold teachings or hold to some religious stance and want you to follow them or want you to be influenced by them, but they do not have Jesus Christ as the central cornerstone of what they are teaching, you are not to believe them. You are not to believe them. They are thieves, says Jesus. And they will come to rob and kill and destroy that spark that is in your heart and in your life, that hunger that you've got, that instinct that God has given you because you are created in his image. You know, friends, we've got to, we've got to take note of what we are. <clears throat> you know, we are actually wonderful creations. You know, we may be very bad morally and bad human beings in our behavior, but as part of God's creation, we are wonderful. Because you know what? We are the only ones described in all of God's creation as being created in God's image. And although that relationship with God that we had originally through our forefathers in the garden has been destroyed, we nevertheless have an inner instinct within us which is Godward. There's an instinct which is away from God, a bias that is away from God, which we call our fallenness and our sinfulness. But there's nevertheless an instinct in us, in us uh, a sense of homelessness. So that description of having an inner homelessness is quite true. Not everybody will feel it to the same degree, but there are many people who are put, they wouldn't put it like that. They wouldn't know how to describe it. But there's an inner something that is missing. There's a question that says, is this life all that there is? Especially when we go through the hard times of life. Is this all that there is? And because they don't have an answer for it, they plunge into some form of activity. Maybe some sort of social activity, maybe ambition, making money, it may be drugs or whatever it may be. But there is this instinct in us. And there is an instinct, you know, Jesus said this, he said, my sheep hear my voice. So that when you hear the word of God preached, when, when you became a Christian, when you first became a Christian, do you know what happened to you? You heard the shepherd's voice. And you may have heard it over a progressive period of time. You may have heard the Bible read or books read or pe people preaching or people speaking to you. And you may have heard, hey, that voice, I recognize that voice. You wouldn't have put it like that, but that's what's happening inside. So you followed the voice to salvation. And there is that instinct in us that looks for salvation, that hunger. But Jesus said you cannot trust that instinct just to everybody. You could trust it only to those who talk to you about Jesus. You can trust it only to him, in fact. You've got to come to him. He's the one whom you can trust and who will never let you down. Jesus put it in other ways in the Bible as well. In one of the other Gospels, Mark's Gospel, he tells the story of the sower who goes to sow out in the field. You remember, you'll, I'm sure, remember it very well. And uh, some of the seed falls on this hard, stony ground along the pathway. And then Jesus says, the devil comes and he takes the seed away. He describes it like that. Many people are like that. You know, they'll, they'll hear you speak to them, or may, maybe there's someone like that here today in the church. You'll hear the word of God preached. You will, you will sort of, you know, get the message of something here. But it doesn't penetrate. It never takes root. And before you know, it's swept away. I've often said to my own congregation back at home when I've preached to them, the one person who's always regularly in church, if you're not regular, there's one person who is regularly in church. That's the devil. He stands at the doorway to snatch the seed away 
the moment it's been planted in your life. And only the sovereign power of God makes that seed take root. Then Jesus said, other seed <coughs> falls on ground and for a while, you know, it takes root. People are filled with joy when they hear it. But then they get all the opposition that comes with being a Christian. They discover, wait a minute, my friends don't believe this. And my family doesn't believe this. And hey, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to put myself out on the outer edges there if I embrace this. And so because of the persecution and the trials that come with being a Christian, they abandon it. And so they turned away. And the seed is snatched out of their hearts, stolen away from them. That seed, that, that hunger in there, that instinct in them is crushed by the opposition that they experience. Then Jesus said some of the seed falls amongst the thorns. And uh, he was saying that the distractions of life sometimes stifle that instinct within us. And you know what it's like. You're growing up, you've got a growing family, you've got children. <clears throat> the demands become greater as time goes by. Kids get sick um, there's maybe problems in the family or somebody that disappoints you or life becomes so busy and it's so hard to make a living and to keep, keep food on the table and a roof over our heads and it's so difficult to keep all of our appointments together and life becomes so busy we, we become distracted by it all. And the very life that we live, the very lifestyle that we adopt, the very things we embrace as being the good life actually takes that instinct in us and crushes it right out of our hearts. No, no, we can't even trust our own lifestyles. We can't trust ourselves the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. There's nothing in this world we can trust. There's nobody ultimately that we can put our faith in or our trust in, especially when we have an inner homelessness, an inner hunger within us at all. We can't trust anybody ultimately except him. Except him. So I've often said to people at home when I preach there, um, don't trust your priest, don't trust your minister, don't trust me as your bishop, don't trust your rector, don't trust any of us because we are human beings we are fallible, we've got feet of clay, we'll sometimes do something that will disappoint you or say something that may disappoint you or maybe we won't handle your problem in the way in which you want it handled. Maybe we won't run the service in the way in which you want it handled. Don't look to us for your ultimate, for your ultimate example. Don't look to us for your ultimate salvation. Don't hang on us. Put your trust in Jesus. We, who are we? Who, who, who's Paul? You know, who's David? Who, who are we? Who's Frank Tritip? What are we? Nothing. We are signposts. We just stand by the side of the way pointing that way to the cross. We are signposts. That's all we are. And we are signposts to Jesus. He's the one that we are to trust. Because we can't trust anyone else because outside there are thieves. And all around us there are thieves. The apathy that we experience is a thief that takes away the seed from our hearts. The criticisms we experience are thieves. Everything is out there to take away the instinct out of our heart. So Jesus says, no, there's nothing you can trust out there. The world is full of thieves. But then he goes on secondly to say, there is one person you can trust, and that is me. And so this is what he says in verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come. I have come that they may have life. Now, once again, you know, I'm always amazed <clears throat> by the um, audacity that Jesus had to say these things. I mean... How can any man say this to his own religious establishment? He says to them, in effect, you are thieves because you're leading the people astray, but I have come. Who was he? He was a carpenter's son. Who was he? He came from Nazareth, a village that wasn't particularly respected in Jesus' day. Who was he? He was born of a virgin, but already whispers were going around that his mother had had an affair with some soldier somewhere. You know the old stories that are picked up by the Da Vinci Code and all these other things. Who was he? If he was not who he said he was, 
Surely he would, he would have been found out in his own day because people had access to everybody around him, to his personal history, to his mother, to his place of birth, his place of growing up. They had access to it all. But Jesus has the audacity to say to all these people, I have come. So who is this person? You've heard lots of quotations from C.S. Lewis from this pulpit, I'm sure, over the years. Here's one more. C.S. Lewis says this, Jesus produced mainly three effects on people. Hatred, terror, or adoration. But there's no trace of people ever expressing mild approval of him. Right? You can't be mildly approving of Jesus because he's the one person in history about whom you cannot remain neutral. If you try to be neutral about Jesus, you're placing yourself in the enemy camp. You cannot be neutral about him. He will not allow you to be. He demands some sort of response to the statements that he makes about himself. I am the gate, or I am the door, or I am the way, or I am the truth, or I am the life. Now you can brush it aside and say it's nonsense if you want to, but at least that's a response. But we can't be mildly approving of Jesus. He doesn't allow that. Who is this person? Well, he describes himself in verse 11 as the good shepherd. And if you go down to verse 33 of the same chapter, you will discover that Jesus' enemies have got a real bone to pick with him. And that is because he describes himself the way he does, he makes himself out to be the Son of God. And by making himself out to be the Son of God, he claims deity for himself. He is saying, I'm equal to God. So here we have the second person of the Trinity coming into our world. And the people who were at enmity with Jesus picked this up. And that's the problem many people have with him today. You see, it's this, it's this claim that he makes. And that's why, that's why Christians get into trouble. We Christians can't allow Jesus to be one of many options. That's not open to us as Christians in Cape Town because I'm a leader of a, of a denomination. I often get invited to various interfaith type of activities. And often I'm asked to participate in interfaith services and I usually politely and courteously decline, although I'm always willing to meet with interfaith people in other forums. So when it's a public forum... I can't actually do that because I cannot allow this person in whom I've placed my trust for eternal salvation, who I, who I believe to be no one less than the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, to be placed on a platform as an option. He's not an option. You see, he's the son of the living God. And because you, a mere man, claim to be God, you make yourself to be the son of God, therefore that's why we want to stone you, said his enemies. You know, I heard a phrase on your radio broadcasting um, BBC4 this morning, I was listening to the news, there's some debate going on at the moment and some of your bishops have actually taken your government to task because they're now discriminating against Christians. And one of the words used was Christophobia. Isn't that interesting? And I think that is absolutely true. Certainly in my country, among certain people who have been very westernised and secular, there's sort of a Christophobia. We fear anything to do with Jesus. Behind all the rejection of stuff in the schools for Christians or the Ten Commandments or whatever you want, behind all the rejection and the debates, there is this innate sense, this instinct that if we come up against Jesus, we're coming up with a problem. He is going to, he is going to confront us with our inner selves. So we have a Christophobia. I think that's a good word and it's probably true of many segments of society, if not true of all. He is God. When he says, I have come... He's saying, God has come. You can trust me because you can trust God. 
says Jesus. I have come. And I have come into this world to die for you. Because I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he makes the point of saying, of, of saying, no one takes my life from me. Sometimes when Easter comes around and I get the opportunity of preaching, I make the point of saying constantly to people, don't forget that when they were nailing his hands to the cross with every blow of the hammer, they thought, the government thought, the opposition to Jesus thought, his enemies thought, they were saying, now you will die, now you will die. We are putting you to death. We are putting you to death. But with every blow of the hammer, it was Jesus saying, I'm laying down my life. I'm laying down my life. I am laying down my life. No one takes it from me. He voluntarily went to the, voluntarily went to the cross so that he could offer himself up as a substitute for us so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. And he said, I have the power to take my life up again. And you know very well that he rose again on the third day. You'll be celebrating all this next weekend. He rose again on the third day. He conquered the forces of evil and death forever, which does not mean that he's taken it out of the world now, but it does mean that their time is limited and he will be out of his world one day soon when the Lord Jesus Christ returns again. He brings a whole new world with him. Friends, this world is your home. God created you for planet Earth and planet Earth for you. It's all been spoiled by sin. But do you think God is going to... He's going to leave it like that? No, no. He's not going to whisk you away one day to a heaven out there somewhere. No, no. He's going to renew his creation. And here we will be real flesh and blood people in a renewed universe, glorified by his great power. It's a great promise that Christians have. So the Lord Jesus Christ has come to die for us. Now, if he came to die for us, and he did die for us as we know he did, he's the one we can trust, right? I wouldn't trust a TV evangelist or a TV preacher. I wouldn't put my trust in some of the people I meet today. I wouldn't put my trust even in the good people that I meet today. Not for my inner hunger and my inner thirst. And the last thing I want to point out to you today is this. Is that Jesus says, there are thieves out there, number one. Number two, I have come, you can trust me. And number three, I have come for a specific reason. And what is it? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life. When the Bible talks about life in this way, friends, it's not talking about simply living forever, although that's important. It's talking about a qualitative life. It's talking about a fullness of something that we cannot even begin to imagine. How can the embryo in a mother's womb ever imagine at that stage of its existence the glory and the beauty of a sunset, of the sun setting over the sea? Well, you know, there's life to be had, a fullness, an, increase, an increasing measure of life like we cannot even begin to articulate or even begin to explain. And for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus and trust him to be our saviour, he forgives our sins. He gives us strength to live in this troublesome world. He gives us purpose for our hearts and our minds and our souls and he gives us hope for the future. He gives us grace upon grace grace so that for those of us who trust him it means that we will never be without help never be without forgiveness never be abandoned never be unforgiven for all of our failures and faults and sins never be condemned again never without hope once we have come to him because when you become a Christian you receive grace upon grace upon grace to see you through life 
And the best way I can describe that is by ending off by telling you about my two little twin boy, four-year-olds who've just recently joined our family, my little grandchildren who come from the orphanage. You know, when they were in the orphanage, they'd been there for four years, they'd never, never been outside of the walls of that orphanage. Never. They had no conception of what life was like outside of the orphanage. So, when they came into our family, you know, they'd sit in the orphanage and they'd colour in a tree, but they'd never seen a big tree. They'd colour in a cow or a horse, but they'd never actually seen one. So, when they came out of the orphanage into our home, it was a huge time of adapting for them, as well as for us, as we realised that these children needed to develop a coherent view of life. They had no coherent view of life at all. And so slowly they were introduced to things. They, and as they, got, as, they introduced, as they got introduced to things, they found the joy of being outside of the orphanage and being adopted into a family. And a little while ago, we had a, a big function at our home. Uh, some years ago, my wife and I started a Christian fellowship for the many people who are doing cross-cultural adoptions. And so we had a fellowship meeting for them. And we invited all of these people to come with their children and our family members, and we had a big function at our home to welcome these two little boys. Of course, they didn't know what we were doing. They just thought it was a party. So they enjoyed themselves. And all the other little children running around, they had a great time. They had a really great time. But all of our friends brought presents for them. And, of course, these children were not used to presents because anything given to the orphanage is for everybody. So they don't know. They had no conception of personal ownership, you see. And so this pile of presents grew. And at the end of the day, when everyone went home, here was a staggering pile of presents from all these good-willed people. And what were we going to do with it? Well, we couldn't just give it to these two little kids. They wouldn't know what to do with it. They wouldn't comprehend it. So we took them all away and put them all away. And what we've done is every few weeks, we've taken one out and we've let them unwrap it. And so they found the joy of a new gift every few weeks. Next few weeks comes by and they do the same thing again. And what they were discovering was the joy and the happiness and the ongoing sense of belonging of their adoption. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. When you become a Christian, not only do you receive the gift of life and forgiveness, but you receive grace upon grace upon grace. And every time we fall or we stumble or we fail in some way or something happens to us and we need his help or we call upon him for some reason as we go through life we discover that his grace is unwrapped again for us we are the people who experience his grace who can we trust dear friends the only person we can fully trust is this saviour Jesus who said I am the gate when a man enters through me he will be saved and find pasture. A woman enters through me, she'll be saved and find pasture, satisfaction, hope and life. Now I'm finished and let me just close by saying that I'm sure that many of you who are here today, you are people who've been Christians for a long period of time so you will know the truth of what I'm saying today and I do commend you for that. But it may well be that there may be a few of you who are here today who aren't so sure. You may have come as a guest or a visitor or maybe even coming for a long time, but these things have not become actually that real to you. You embrace it all because you've got no problem with it, but it hasn't become part of your daily experience. And that's why I want to draw your attention again to this little book and this little card. First of all, the little book is called Crossing the Line. When you become a true believer in Jesus, you cross a line from darkness to light. 
And this little book just explains very simply how that happens and what it means. And I would love you to get this little book. But I can't give it to you unless I get your name and address. I couldn't bring them with me. They're too heavy to carry from South Africa. But if I get your name and address, I will send it to you with a letter of encouragement and would count it an honor to do so. I, I write to people everywhere I preach and do the same thing and I'll be glad to do it for you. But I need your name and address, which is where this card comes in. One of the blocks that you can tick on this card is I would like to receive Frank's book. And if you tick that block, I'll be so pleased to send you the book. But there's other things on this card as well. And your vicar is going to come and conclude the service for us and draw attention to some of the things that are on this card as we draw the service to an end. Let me just say a little prayer, then I'll hand back to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who came to us as the Good Shepherd, who is the gate and through whom we can go and be saved. And we pray that your gracious hand will be upon us today, not only affirming the things that we have believed, not only helping us to be sure of the ground upon which we are standing, but also helping those who are struggling, who have lost their grip, who are not sure of themselves. Help them to take a step forward into the arms of Jesus through that gate and help them to be saved today. I ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you.